Thanks, Glenn. If you're, um, if you're new with us today and you're wondering why, why we're reading this part of the Bible, uh, welcome. It's great to have you with us. Uh, we are in the middle of a series looking at the life of King David. And we're going to be continuing that today and we'll try and provide some context and even some potential relevance for that part of the Bible for us today. So how about I pray and ask God's help for us in that. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for this word preserved. Thank you for this insight into the life of David and his struggles. Pray today that you might help us, even now, by your Holy Spirit, to understand this part of your word and to be challenged and changed by it and its implications. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I was, uh, yesterday I went to um, pick up my, uh, actually to drop off my daughter to go for a play date at, um, at netball. And it was one of those wonderful things. My wife said, oh yeah, uh, Ruby's friend is at the netball. You'll find them and you'll be able to hand them over to have a play date. And so I don't know if you've been to the netball, good gracious me. I mean, it's next to Bunnings out there. And I went to the number three car park and that was avoiding the overflow car park. And then I got to 47 million courts. And I was wandering around looking for one friend of Ruby's. I said, Ruby, do you know what team she plays for? No. Do you know what colour they're in? No. I said, oh, good. This should be easy. Isaac said to me, Daddy, are you being sarcastic? I said, yes. Yes, I am, my boy. Anyway, as I was wandering around the, uh, the courts, I, um, I, uh, I overheard um, a parent um, laying into one of the coaches. And I just thought it's very often that... Uh, this very unfortunate lady uh, turns up. Um, her name is Misunderstanding. And uh, it seemed like there had been some pretty significant misunderstanding uh, between this parent and the coach. And it was not a very happy thing. And when we're misunderstood, when someone doesn't understand what we've done, we, we intended it for good, but someone understood it for evil, what's the cry of our hearts? Well, I think this is the theme song of all, all people who are in this state. Oh, Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. Anyone? No? No one knows this song. Okay, good. Anyway, I think that's the cry of our hearts. Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. I didn't intend this for evil, but someone's got me wrong, and it makes us feel terrible. So there might be, it might be misunderstanding, or, or maybe something a little bit worse has happened. I don't know if you remember this scene uh, from the, uh, the Lord of the Rings. Uh, this is uh, uh, an enemy that is pursuing the hobbits. Do you, anyone... No, okay, so you've got it. This is an unrelenting enemy. This enemy will never stop. This enemy always pursues. This enemy will not give up. Now, for some of us, we have in our lives not just someone who's misunderstood us, but someone who is pursuing us relentlessly. And some of you might know what it is to have someone who, even despite your best efforts, might be against you. In this situation, it's not just, Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. It's justice that we're looking for. Please, Lord, sort this out. And maybe if you've been really wronged or you've got someone who's really against you, you, you may have a revenge fantasy, which would look something like this, I think. When, when we're wronged, when we're pursued, we, we kind of can grab onto this part of us which says, I actually really want this to be sorted out very strongly in my favour. I want justice, not just not to be misunderstood. And if today you've had that feeling or you know what that feeling looks like, then I think this passage actually has something to say for us. Do you know this feeling? And if you do, what should you do that's actually godly? What should you do that's godly? 
In order to do that, we're going to look at this ancient text. We're going to go back and see the life of David and see what was happening for him. And we picked the story up in a wonderful place called the Desert of Ziph, uh, which looks something like that. Not very hospitable would be my observation. If you can join with me, uh, we're in 1 Samuel. I'm looking at some verses just before where Luke picked up the story this morning. We're in uh, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 23. And I want to look with you at verses 13 uh, to 18. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keliah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he did not go there. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. We want to see that having... The two anointed, which you said is going to be a problem, is acting itself out here. Last week we saw that Saul wanted to pin David to the wall with a javelin. This week we see that Saul is actually pursuing David into the desert to find him and to kill him. But we see that David has an unexpected ally. Did you see who that was? Jonathan, who is Saul's what? He's Saul's son. So you would not expect the son of the current king to be backing the one that the current king is trying to kill. That's a pretty unexpected ally, isn't it? And we see two things that I want to kind of focus on here briefly, two things that mark this particular part of the story as incredibly helpful. The first is friendship. Now, we love friendship. We love friendship. If we don't have it, we long for it. If we have it, we cherish it. But there's something here about godly friendship, Christian friendship in that sense. Christian friendship is companionship like family that encourages and points the other to their living God. Companionship like family that encourages and points the other to the living God. We see it in verse 16. Have a look. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Do you see that? Now guys, this is a friendship that is better than a text message. It's a friendship that is better than let's go out and have a meal. It's a friendship that in companionship points you to mutual strength that is found in God. You want a Christian friend. And you want to be a Christian friend to someone else. Our enduring value, the fourth one over here, actually has that at its heart. We say that we want to be a church who builds people up in Jesus so that they would endure They would run to win the prize. And it says here, where are you weak and in danger of falling? Was David weak? Absolutely. He was in danger of falling into the hand of his enemy. Who knows you well enough to ask this question? Jonathan sought him out. How beautiful is that? And then we see the question underneath it. Who are you strengthening to run the race to the end? Do you have a Christian friend who will encourage you to run the race to the end? That was Jonathan to David. That is the beauty of Christian friendship. 
The second thing we see here is the friendship manifests itself in a covenant. Now, this word, if you haven't met it before, is a key concept in the whole of the Bible, okay? Covenant. And and what does it mean? It's a solemn and binding agreement between parties concerning their future obligations, consequences, and commitment. In other words, the the one covenant that we have most access to was on TV last night, wasn't it? Yep, some of you know what was on TV last night. Were you watching? It's pretty good. Brent, you, you didn't watch. I'm a bit disappointed about that, mate. But okay, so the covenant that we most have access to is marriage, isn't it? It's a binding agreement where we say, I pledge my future to you, where we undertake responsibility to care for the other. And it's a dominant theme in the Old Testament because God covenants with people. He covenants with Abraham to found the people. He covenants with Moses. He covenants with Noah. He covenants with Israel to say, I will care for you and there are obligations for you in response. But here we see at this personal level, this beautiful thing between David and Jonathan, which is the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Covenant is key and we'll see that in a later, in a later um, sermon in this series. Now, uh, there's a wonderful pursuit kind of happening Wonderful, unless you're David, I guess. And uh, in the pursuit, David is on one side of the mountain and Saul is coming around the other side of the mountain. And now we can see this in verses 26 and 20, 26 to 29 of, of uh, chapter 23. Saul was going along one side of the mountain and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. Then Saul broke off pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That is why they call this place Selah Hamar Lekoth. Of course they do. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Here's what happens. Basically, David was done, but message comes in time to say, King Saul, you've actually got bigger fish to fry. The nation's at stake. You can't just be pursuing your personal enemy. You've actually got to come and save the nation. And so he breaks off and David and his men are saved. Now we pick up uh, chapter 24. Now, uh, does anyone know what this is? Outhouse. Outstanding. Well done. If you go to an outhouse uh, and uh, it's vacant, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Good thing. Because when it's occupied, you don't want to be in it, yes? Everyone, this is good social you practice. Don't be in there if someone else is in there. Okay, all right. So, so the idea is, sorry? Go tell the kids. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to know. Um, so, so here's the thing. You would expect to um, go to the loo in private, wouldn't you? Have a look at the story here in uh, chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave, The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemies into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. 
That's the answer to uh, Luke's cliffhanger at the start of the, seri- uh, start of the service. What happened? He cut off the corner of his robe. A couple of things to observe here. Number one, you would expect to be going to the loo in private. Was he alone? No. The people he was pursuing were in the back of the cave where he went in to relieve himself. It's a pretty awkward and uh, unexpected little moment uh, in, um, in Saul's life. When that happens, the blokes who are at the back of the cave are saying to David, now David, you remember this prophecy where God said that he'd give your enemies into your hands and you can do whatever you want. It looks like it just happened. Go get him. Now, my only observation with this is we actually don't have record of this prophecy being given to David. Okay? And I wonder, just quietly, I wonder in my head whether this prophecy is made up by the men. Because I'm not sure that God would have said to him, David, when your enemy is given into your hands, you can do with him whatever you want. I'm just, I'm just not convinced that that sounds like God. So, anyway, I'm not sure whether this is an actual prophecy or not, but the men love it, and I think they've been quietly polishing it and going, all right, here we are, roll that out. Did you know God said to you he'd give you... I think they're just basically saying, this is an opportunity too good to resist, and they add a little bit of God flavor into it. It's a prophecy, dude. Go take, take care of that. And so what does he do? Well, he goes up to, he actually gets close enough to Saul. It would have been absolutely easy for him to do it. He has a knife so sharp, he can cut off part of his garment. So it would have been very easy, I assume, to follow through with the job and to kill him. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He resists taking the opportunity, which looks like is given to him on a platter. Why does he do it? Well, he does that because he's concerned about the Lord's anointed. He knows that Saul has been made king of Israel and he's decided, I won't be the one to remove the king of Israel. And so he he does this thing where he cuts the end off and then he reveals himself because he wants to make his appeal. He wants to say, Saul, listen, I'm not as bad as you think that I am. Have a look with me at verses 5 to 10. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay a hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. So they're saying, Hey, look, David, you you kind of pulled your punch. We're going to go and finish it off. No, 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 boys, hold it, hold it, steady, steady. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king! When Saul looked up behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. Do you see that? So David actually, I mean, I think he's actually very smart. If he had killed Saul, he would have actually probably provoked a civil war in Israel. It's a pretty dangerous thing to kill the king. And what he does instead is he says, I could have killed you. I'm holding the proof of that in my hand, but I want you to get, doesn't this show you that the people are wrong when they say that I was planning to kill you. I think it's a good case. Interestingly enough, I want you to notice uh, David had something that seems to have grown out of fashion these days, a thing called a conscience. Have you guys heard of that? Yeah, it's a little joke. Um, I, actually don't, I actually don't think people have very much of a conscience anymore, at least I don't listen to them. David was conscience-stricken. You know that little voice that says, what I just did was wrong? 
He's actually listening to it. I think we mostly stuff a sock in its mouth, don't we? And say, don't talk any longer to me, it was fine. He listens to his conscience and it leads him to repent. He won't do it because he's facing the Lord's anointed and he has foregone the opportunity to remove his enemy from him in one fell swoop because he's entrusting himself to something else. David doesn't take revenge into his own hands. He doesn't follow through on his Arnie revenge fantasy. He doesn't do that. Why? Because he's appealing to a higher court. You know where this is, don't you? Does anyone know? The High Court of Australia, where seven judges will sit on the bench, the full bench of the High Court, and this is the highest court you can go to. Where is David's High Court? Have a look with me at 24, 12 to 15. May the Lord, he's still talking with Saul. I assume he's still on his face, so I might need to muffle a little bit. May the Lord. He's still on his face before the. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, and so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge. And decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Do you see what he's saying here? God is the one to whom David entrusts his case. To whom David entrusts his case. Yes, that's a typo. I have to deal with that. David is the one to. Uh, sorry, God is the one to whom David entrusts his case. He's saying, "May the Lord." He's saying, "Saul." You know what? You've misunderstood me, but I'm entrusting myself to God. God sees, God knows, God will vindicate me. I will not seek to write this through my own hands and my own activity. And Saul responds in in verse 17, you are more righteous than I. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king. This is the current king saying it. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. And in verse 22 we're told, So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So what's what's happening here? Well, we're seeing it's a covenant. It's a covenant not to kill off Saul's descendants. He's saying, I plead for the life of those who are after me. They don't deserve to die. Even if you're going to become king, and I can see that's going to happen, don't kill my family. And David pledges solemnly that that will be the case. Now, here's a picture of, uh, of the cave, the cave of Adullam, or at least one that's supposed to be that cave. It's really interesting. A lot of David's psalms come from this moment in his life where he was being pursued unrighteously. And he cries out and he says, God, deal with my enemies. And so we see example in Psalm 142, which explicitly says a Psalm of David written when he was in the cave. And you can look at that uh, afterwards uh, in your own time. But this longing from David uh, comes out in his writings in the Psalms. So, So what happens next? Well, let me give you a quick summation of the next six chapters. In chapter 25, we meet... Nabal, do you remember him from last week? We meet Nabal and we see that David gives thanks for Abigail who saved him from doing the wrong thing. 
In chapter 26, uh, I've called it Sleeping Lions, uh, David goes into the camp of Saul. And Saul is lying down in the middle of his camp, surrounded by all his army. And David and his mate creep in and steal the water jar and the spear from beside the king's head and then go far enough away to say, hey, wake up, everyone. And they wake up and uh, David says to Abner, hey, Abner, you're supposed to be looking after the king, aren't you? Yes, I am. I'm the king's bodyguard. And he says, well, where are the king's spear and water jug? Oops. And he says to Saul, Saul, do you know you're still pursuing me? Have a look. I could have killed you, but I didn't. Can you please back off and leave me alone? That's chapter 26. In chapter 27, we see he doesn't, and so uh, uh, David decides to run away. David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So he actually goes and hangs out with the Philistines. And this guy called uh, Archish um, takes him under his wing and says, no, no problems, mate, you can stay with us. You can go and, uh, and, and carry out campaigns, and you can stay in the land of the Philistines because I know that Saul hates you. Works out pretty well. Uh, then we see this bit where, uh, quite amazingly, uh, the Philistines invade and um, Saul asks a medium to contact Samuel for him. It's a really terrible bit of uh, work on Saul's part. So the medium uh, summons some sort of spiritual entity, which is supposed to be Samuel, and uh, basically Samuel says to him, you're an idiot and you're going to die. Well, there you go. That's what's going to happen. And so we see that. Uh, the, uh, the Philistines are marching out to battle and David's hanging around with them because Achish says, he's a really good guy. He should come with us and fight against the Israelites. And the rest of the commanders go, this is not going to work out well. This guy's an Israelite. We're going to go and fight the Israelites. He'll turn sides midway through. And anyway, so the commanders say, David, rack off. And so he does. That's chapter 29. And while they're away, we find out in chapter 30 that some other uh, guys have come and raided their village where the men had been staying taken all their women and children and all their, uh, all their possessions and burnt their town to the ground, which sounds pretty bad. And uh, it actually says that the men are talking about stoning David because uh, they were very bitter. And it says, but David found strength in the Lord. And so he asked God and he says, should we, over, should we pursue this raiding party? And God says, yes. He chases after them overwhelms the raiding party, gets all of his wives, children, and possessions back, and comes back to his home. That's what's been going on. Now we pick up the story in chapter 31. It's action-packed, man, isn't it? In chapter 31, uh, we see something happen, which is very sad for Saul and his family. Uh, Last night, we looked at the royal line, didn't we? Some of us, Brent? Yes, yes, we did. So uh, who's, who's, uh, who's next in line for the royal throne? Charlie, yes. And didn't he look great uh, leading Megan down? I thought he did a great job. Uh, who's next after him? William, very good. Okay. So if Charlie uh, you know, has a uh, heart problem at some point, uh, uh, William will step up, uh, which is great. Harry's so far down the line, I don't think it matters anymore. Um, but the royal line is a thing. The descendants of the king. Have a look what happens to the sentence of the king in this battle against the Philistines in 31, 1 to 4. Now the Philistines fought hard against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell on Mount Gilboa. 
the Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. What do we see? We see in this terrible picture of battle loss that the royal line has come to an end. David and his three sons are killed on the same day. Ah, Saul, thank you. That's really helpful. Thank you, guys, because otherwise you're just wondering. I misspoke. Thank you. Saul and his three sons have been wiped out in this battle. And so the royal line has come to an end. Now, you would think it's celebration time, right? When, when the enemy is defeated, you think, hey, victory is here. But that is not how David treats what has happened. Not only has his own, fam- uh, his own nation been defeated, but his enemy has been destroyed, and he doesn't view him that way. If we turn to 2 Samuel, we look in verse 17, we see David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, And he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. And so David actually takes up a lament. He tells the people, we're to sing in sadness today. In verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired. And in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Jerusalem, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother, for you were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. Now, if you've ever heard the turn of phrase, how the mighty have fallen, have you heard that before? How the mighty have fallen? Did you know it comes from the Bible? It didn't exist before this. It's a Bible phrase. So before it was written in the Bible, it didn't exist. And the way we know it in English is from the English Bible. How the mighty have fallen. And so this is not a victory for David, but a time of lament and sadness. Well, that's our story. The kingship of Saul has been removed. It wasn't by David's hand, was it? He didn't kill him. The enemies did. And not just him, but his sons Three, gener- three, three brothers, all killed. So there is no line of Saul left to rule now. And what do we do? What do we do with this ancient story? Let me give you three things. I want to tell you today that wisdom is better than obsessive plotting. When it comes to your enemies, to those who misunderstand you but work against you, wisdom is better than obsessive plotting. What does that mean? Well, we, we see from David that evasion is okay. It's all right to run away from your enemy. It's all right. In fact, particularly in cases where you're not safe, we want to say to you, safety is a priority. If you have an enemy, be safe. That is wise. But your revenge fantasy is not good for your soul, so stop it. It's not good for your soul, so stop it. Choose wisdom, not obsessive plotting. Secondly, I wanted you to see that self-control is always better than getting physical. Self-control is always better than getting physical. 
Watch your worldly advice. It may be that someone says, can't you see God has handed them into your hands? It's now time to drive the knife in. Watch for worldly advice. It will not always match up with what God wants for you. And resist anger in all of its forms. How will we do that? We'll do that by practicing humility when we're misunderstood or when we have an enemy. Humility is greater than seeking the power of revenge. Humility is greater. Because faith entrusts our future to the living God who is the ultimate high court. Faith entrusts our future to the living God who is the ultimate high court. And when your conscience pricks you, act with your judge in mind. Act with your judge in mind. Listen to your conscience and act with your judge in mind. You know, Jesus adds one more thing uh, to this whole uh, matter of dealing with our enemies. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Even the pagans do that. There's something distinctly Christian about the way we should deal with those who are opposed to us. And so, do you have misunderstanding? Do you have an enemy? Here's the advice that is crystallized for us in the book of Romans. It says this. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Oh, sorry, where am I? I'm in the wrong, wrong place. It's good, though. Uh, do not repay evil for evil. There we go. Uh, do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to, reven- to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Uh, what do I want for you guys? I want you to know the peace of entrusting your future to God. To live new life, New life is distinctly different from the ways of this world. May God help us and may we help each other. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is a way to respond to enemies in the midst of misunderstanding. We ask, Father, that we might be those who entrust ourselves to you, that we are not those who seek revenge, that we are wise in seeking safety, but that we show self-control and humility. Have mercy, Father. We entrust ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to finish uh, today's service with a song, so I'll ask the band to come up. While they're doing that, if I can ask you to get your Caring Connect cards, they look like this. If you're new amongst us, there'll be someone here re- wearing a green badge. That'll be a great place to start to get connected here uh, over morning tea. If you can fill in your Caring Connect card that looks like this, let us know if you're new. If you've got a prayer point, you can uh, bring that before us, uh, write it down there, and uh, Jeff and Lauren and Michael and myself will be really happy to pray for them. So if you can fill them out now. If you don't have a Caring Connect card, uh, grab one on your way out and write it down. Uh, that would be really helpful. And Meg is going to lead us uh, in our final song. Thanks so much, Meg.